Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Joshua as we continue our lesson. Joshua chapter 16. And let me read this chapter. There's only ten verses here. And we'll read it, kind of give a little bit of a background, and then hope to draw uh, some lessons from this. Joshua chapter 16. And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho, unto the water of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goeth up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel, and goeth out from Bethel to Luz, and passeth along unto the borders of Archai to Adaroth, and goeth down westward to the coast of Jephletai, unto the coast of Bethhoron, the nether, and to Gezer, and the goings out thereof are at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. And the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. Even the border of their inheritance on the east side was Atheroth Adar unto Bethhoron the upper. And the border went out toward the sea to uh, Mechmetha on the north side. And the border went about eastward unto and passed by it on the east to Genoa. And it came and went down from Genoa to Adaroth and to Naareth and came to Jericho and went out at Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward unto the river Cana, and the goings out thereof were at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim by their families. And the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh. All the cities were their villages. And they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. In the previous chapter, that is chapter 15, we saw the lot that was given to the tribe of Judah. And so we learned there something of Judah's boundaries were that uh, the lines were drawn for his uh, family or his descendants. Uh, you remember Judah was Jacob's fourth son, not his firstborn, but his fourth son. And yet he was the one who actually received much of the blessings of Jacob. Uh, you remember also his mother was Leah. That was not Jacob's most favorite wife. Rachel was. But his portion fell towards the southern. If you take a map, if you would look on that map of Israel, his would be... Uh, at least in modern day, what we'd call southern portion of the land of Canaan. And chapter 15 then does give the boundaries and the cities, or at least some of those cities, of that portion of the country. Now in this chapter, and also in chapter 17, we see the lot given unto the children of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was Jacob's favored son, if you remember, and his mother was Rachel, uh, yes, Rachel, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. He loved her above uh, that he loved Leah. And, of course, Joseph was the son then of Jacob and also of Rachel. And we see his life in the main being spoken of there in the closing chapters, last ten chapters of the book of Genesis. And while dwelling in Egypt, you remember that the Lord gave two sons unto uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis, chapter 41 and verse 50. He says, Unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asneath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bare unto him. 
And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So we see that God was gracious to Joseph and gave him two sons. And the reason for that is we see even the names, Manasseh and Ephraim, are given there in our text as a reason as to why he would have to rejoice in that. Now, Manasseh, as we saw there, was Joseph's firstborn. Ephraim, though, was his secondborn. And also in chapter 48 of Genesis, we see that Joseph or Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons there in Genesis 48. And verse 20. Now, this is all part of the text, and uh, the reason why I'm bringing this out is we'll see here in a few moments in some lessons. But notice in uh, verse 20, he says, And he blessed them that day, that is, Jacob blessed the two sons, saying, And thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, remember, Manasseh is the firstborn. Ephraim is the secondborn. But when it came to the blessings, we see here that Ephraim was put before Manasseh. And he says, uh, and God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. And so there we see something then of just a many beginnings of uh, those two tribes, Manasseh and of Ephraim. Now, in the book of Revelation, Ephraim's name is not specifically mentioned there in that chapter that deals with the twelve tribes. Uh, Manasseh's name, by the way, is mentioned. Joseph's name is mentioned, but we do not see the tribe of Ephraim. It could be that Joseph's name was substituted there for Ephraim. I don't know. I'll have to leave that to others as to why that particular passage reads as it does. Ephraim, though, as we learn from the Old Testament history of him, he was judged very greatly for his idolatry. He had fallen into apostasy. In fact, he was one of those that fell into apostasy very early on. We see some sad, sad things in regards to some of the things of Ephraim there in the very early chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, He was great with idols. In fact, the book of Hosea uh, prophesies a lot uh, in regards to Ephraim and something of his uh, failures, his sins. And so we see a very interesting history uh, in relationship to Ephraim. Now, in verses 1 through 4 of the text that we read this morning, we see the sons of Joseph here taking their inheritance in the land. That's verses 1 through 4. And then the remainder of that chapter, verses 5 through 10, Ephraim is the subject of the remainder of that, and we see his allotment of the land in very general terms that are listed here. Okay, now that you've heard that about verse or chapter 16, the question is this morning, what does all of this have to do with us? What are the lessons that we can draw from chapter 16? And I have to confess, I had to uh, really struggle with this because this was a very difficult thing of trying to bring out some things that would be helpful to us in regards to that. But one of the reasons why we were looking something of the history of Ephraim and something of the history there of Manasseh, just very briefly, because we're going to cover Manasseh next time, Lord willing, in chapter 17, is the fact that uh, 
there are some things that we'll learn from the histories of these two this very morning. First of all, it's this. We notice here the sovereignty of God in the arrangement of dealing with Joseph's two sons. We see God's sovereignty. Now, if you don't know what the word sovereignty means, it means basically this. God has the prerogative to do what He wants. This is one of the things about being God. When you're God, you can run the world as you see fit, as long as in accordance, of course, with His holy will. And everything He does, obviously, is in accordance to His holy will. God is holy. And He would do nothing outside of His uh, that essence of who He is that would be contrary to that. And all that He does, according to the Scripture then, He does it. But He also does it because He's sovereign. In other words, He does as He pleases. In the Psalms, it's one of those passages where David is suffering greatly and his enemies are laughing at him and saying, well, where's your God now? And David retorts back, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. That's where God's at. And that's who God is. And so when we say sovereign this morning, we mean that God is in control. And when we say in control, we mean in control of everything. There's not a hair on our heads that are not affected by God. There is not a sparrow that doesn't fall out of the sky without the Father, the Scripture says. So it goes from the the least drop of rain to the very salvation and the end of man. All of that is in the sovereign control of God. He does as He pleases, to whom He pleases, how He pleases, when He pleases. To the end, for the glory of His name. And so that's God. And so we see in this then something of this sovereignty in the arrangement with the dealings of Joseph's two sons. You'll notice, as we read a while ago in Genesis, Moses, or excuse me, Manasseh was the firstborn. And usually the firstborn, not all the time, but usually the firstborn received the greatest inheritance. But this is not the case here. Ephraim, on the other hand, receives the great inheritance. He got the choice of the land here at this point. Manasseh did not. Manasseh got some good land too. But Ephraim got the better of the land. And as we saw from Jacob's blessing, it was not to be so that Manasseh would get it. God overruled and placed Manasseh underneath the blessings of Ephraim. And brethren, often God does overrule in such matters as blessings. Blessings are not up to us. Blessings don't fall because of this or that happenstance concerning us. Blessings to us are sovereign. I'm not saying they're not means. There are certainly means by which they come. There are channels by which uh, blessings come. But when you bring it all back, it comes down to this, that the blessings are of the Lord And He sovereignly dispenses them as it pleases Him. And of course, the hard part about that is submitting. Is submitting. And of course, we must submit. One of the great part of trials that come our way is the fact that things don't work out the way that we think they ought to work out. 
And they often work out at times the way that we would not want them to work out. God just seems to change all of our want-tos. He changes all of our, our desires and, and plans. And they just don't work like we think they ought to work. How many have had that happen to you? I bet surely at least one of us have experienced that kind of thing. It just didn't turn out the way that I wanted to. My will was crossed. My desires were not fulfilled in the way that I thought. Well, you know what? It even happened that way with Joseph with his two sons. Back in Genesis 48, where uh, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob to be blessed. And I'll have to read all this because of, uh, of what takes place, and you'll see. In verse 10 of Genesis 48, Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so they could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God has showed me also thy seed. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. Now, the reason why he does it that way, why does he put Manasseh towards the right hand of, of Jacob? So that Jacob could put his right hand, which is a symbol of the blessings being brought across to that son. Manasseh, you remember, is the firstborn. Ephraim is the secondborn. And so, who arranges it here? Joseph. Joseph says, this is, the way I, this is the way it ought to be. This is the way I'm going to do it. This is the way I want it. Well, what happens? Verse 14, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon, not Manasseh, but Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, Notice that, wittingly, which means he knew what he was doing, children. The word wittingly there means that. He knew what he was doing. This was not a mistake on Jacob's part. Jacob did this purposely. He says, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, and the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Not Jacob, but it displeased Joseph. Joseph was displeased here. And he held up his father's hand. He grabbed his hand, and he says, and to remove his father's hand, he held it up. He goes on to say, and he removed it and put it back on Manasseh's head. And Joseph said, not so, my father, look, this is not right. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. Verse 19. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Well, we see what happened. Ephraim, in the norm, would have received the greater blessing. But instead, he does Or excuse me, Manasseh would have received the greater blessing. But instead, Ephraim does. 
Notice here, Joseph then submits, doesn't he? Thus then, it is our duty to submit under trials and the sovereign arrangements of God. And God doesn't have to ask our permission how to run His universe. Man thinks He does, but He does not. So, brethren, the trials that come to us that we may not like, we may not think are fair, or just shouldn't happen this way, well, God brought them. And He was sovereign in doing so. And many things that happen in our lives, brethren, are not to our choosing, are they? And they're also not to our liking. They, as Joseph's, we see of Joseph's life, they displeased Him. They displeased him. So we need to be prepared that we're going to have some disappointments in our lives. If you don't know that yet, then let me encourage you to realize you're going to have some disappointments. Why? Because there's a God who is in control. Nothing falls out by dumb luck or blind chance. Even the casting of the lot is in control by God. You roll some dice and the numbers that show up on those dice after you roll them is of God. If it's a three, it's a three because that's what God ordained. If it's a twelve box card, then that's what God ordained. If it's snake eyes, that's two. That's what God ordained. None of this, brethren, is by chance. What's the lesson then in that? There's a lesson in this lesson. It's this. Contentment is great gain. The world thinks getting all you can get is where great gain is. But Paul told young Pastor Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Somebody's got it backwards, don't they? Guess who it is? It's not Paul. It's the world and their thoughts. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what we need to do, brethren, when these things come our way, we need to learn to be content. We need to have that grace exercised among us. Look over in the book of Philippians and I'll show you. You may say, well, okay, that's great. Now, how do I do that? Well, let me give you some helps that the Apostle Paul gave to the Philippians as he reminds them of his contentment. A lot of times we just read that verse and we don't pay attention to the context. Uh, but in the context are some helps as to how we can be stirred up to be content. Look in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak, now he's telling them about how that they took care of him. No other churches were watching over him, but the other, these, this church did. And he was very thankful, but he was also very content. It's not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased, that means me to brought low and have nothing. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
Now, we know those verses. Some of us probably have them memorized. We may quote them when we're counseling someone, or we may just read them ourselves in order to be helped. But did you ever notice the context to see how this grace is to be exercised in a what they would call in a friendly manner? How do I do it? What are some things that's going to help me to become content with my lot in life? They're found in the passage. First is this. Back up in verse 4, he tells them to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Remember a few weeks ago we were preaching on the joy of our salvation, or thy salvation, and how that, brethren, it's not holy to be unhappy or a lack of joy in our Christian walk. I know that some have misread, as we said, the Puritans and think that's what the, the, what they thought or what the Bible thinks, but they're sadly mistaken. The gospel is good news. It's joyful news. So we are commanded, no, yes, commanded to rejoice twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. So there has to be in our present state some rejoicing. If you want to be content, rejoice. We've been reading, uh, or my wife has actually, and we've taken some of that into our family devotions, a book on uh, Psalm 103 on gratitude. And, and he says, you know, he gave an example of, of a woman, a preacher visited her, and he's, she had no reason, she said, to be thankful. And he says, oh, surely you got one reason. And he says, what you need to do is tonight, whenever you have your devotions, you go to prayer, you tell him at least one thing to be thankful for. And so she did that. And when she started to do that, she realized, well, there's this thankfulness for that. And then she said, well, then there's this. And then, oh, there's this. And it just kept multiplying. The next time he visited her, he found out that she was just a totally different woman. Because she became thankful, recognizing how much she had to be thankful for in our present state. Secondly, seek to think on pure things. Verse 8. Rejoice. Put your mind on things that need to be thought about. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That's going to help you in a state of contentment. To exercise contentment, be thankful and be joyous. And notice here, there are things you ought to be putting your mind on. If you dwell on your on your circumstances, then guess what? Well, I won't have a lot to be content about. So you need to change your thought patterns. Get them shifted back where they belong. Thirdly, learn to learn. As I put that in my notes, learn to learn. Because sometimes we have a hard time with this. Learn to learn to obey. Do you think you'll be content in this life and a life of disobedience to God's Word? I doubt it. If I know anything about the Bible and the conscience, you won't be. So if you're not obeying verse 4 and you're not obeying verse 8, then it doesn't, I can I can certainly see why you wouldn't be content. It has to be obedience. Verse, verse 9 says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and see in me, here it is in the imperative, do. Do it. What you've learned, you do it. What you've heard, you do it. What you've received of me, you do it. 
what you saw me do, you do it. And the God of peace shall be with you. That's conditional. You want the God of peace with you? Then you better obey. We better obey. The fourth thing, and I already talked about that a little bit, was to be thankful. Be thankful. Fifthly, trust and depend upon the Lord Jesus. Look in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Five good ways to work contentment in your walk. And I bet you this morning, if I was a betting feller, if you are discontent this morning and you're not happy, I could go to one of these passages and say, which one of these are you lacking, or all of them are you lacking? And you would tell me there's some there not in your life. Why? You just don't want to obey. And then is there any wonder that you're not content? Is there any wonder your conscience bothers you? Those of you who are not faithful to the means of grace, those of you who don't, who don't take up family worship, obey the Sabbath, come to church faithfully, is there any wonder you're truly not happy? Those who don't rejoice, those who, who, who uh, are not thankful, those of us who don't trust and depend on the Lord, is there any reason then? That, I mean, think about it. Why wouldn't you be miserable? Why wouldn't you be discontent in your situation? Well, that's the lesson we learn here. Ephraim received the greater blessing and Joseph had to live with that. And so did Manasseh. Secondly, we see Ephraim's failures back in our text. Notice that last verse. Sad to say, but it's here. And they drave out not the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. They had blessings, didn't they? Ephraim was certainly blessed above Manasseh. He received a good portion of land. The the promise there was complete to them. They got it, but they didn't take all of the land that they should have. They didn't possess it. I mean, they had it, but they didn't take possession of that land. And while they did put the Canaanites, as you notice there in verse 10, under tribute, this was only so when they were strong. When Ephraim became weak, then the Canaanites became a pain in their sides. And so the Canaanites then literally became a snare among them. Now, verse 10 is also referred to in other portions of Scripture. This is how much it made a play upon uh, uh, the mind of the Spirit, so to speak, as he, herds, or as he reveals these things to us. And this truth, then, gives us a couple of three lessons here as well. It serves as a stir and a warning. And when I say stir, I mean to stir us up to do what's right. What's the stir, first of all, when we realize that there are enemies still in the land? What does that teach us? Well, it stirs us up to watch over remaining sin and the world that is about us. That's what this lesson of the Canaanites still dwelling in the land has to say to us today. 
Brethren, we're still in this land and there is still Canaanites in us. And there are Canaanites around us. And we better watch it. And if we don't put them under tribute, they will put us under tribute. Tribute, children, means taxed. They were taxed. And that's what he means here. They will tax us if we don't tax them. Secondly, it's a warning of what remaining sin can do to us. That passage in Galatians 5, the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that you cannot do the things that you would. Paul said, when I would do good, sin is present with me. Evil is present with me. Paul recognized in both of those places something of of what remaining sin can do to the believer. And brethren, if we want victory over that remaining corruption, then we must seek help in Christ. We must obey the means of grace. Faith in God's Word. Faith in Christ. Remember, Paul says, or John says, this is the victory that overcometh the world. And what is it? Our faith. Faith. And then thirdly, remaining sin in us is a means to try and to test us. In other words, which will we follow? The flesh or the spirit? In the book of Judges, God so much as tells them that. The reason why those things are in the land is to try and to test you, to prove you. In Judges 2, he says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I will also not henceforth drive out any from among them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them, that is through these nations that I am leaving, that I will not drive out, that I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations, driving them out hastily. Neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 1 of the next chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Why did God leave them there? To prove us, to test us. And brethren, that's what remaining sin does to us. It tests us. It tries to prove us. It's going to show whether we're going to obey God or not. And we must fight against it. We must war against those things. It won't be easy. It will take grace. It will take strength from Christ. It will take faith. But we must war against it. We cannot, we must not make peace with the Canaanites. We must not make peace with sin in us. We can't ignore it. And we just can't hope it will go away. Because it won't. We must deal with it as God would have us to deal with it. And then the third thing, Ephraim's failure to drive out their enemies is a lesson to us that we still live in this world. The world is going to be the thorn in our sides. And we must fight 
against the world. Now, you know, when I say the world, I mean it in a couple of ways. One, obviously the pagan, the ungodly bunch that are out there that are fighting and warring against us. But you know what? The religious world as well. There's a lot of religion out there that's false. And it fights against us too. It tries to influence us to walk contrary to God. That was Paul's. A lot of Paul's struggles wasn't necessarily with all the pagans. They gave him trouble too, no doubt. But his main trouble came from the Jews that stirred up the pagans to afflict him. And brethren, that's what happens to us. Peter tells us, he says um, in chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to former lusts in your ignorance. Don't do that. Peter has to remind them, don't do it. You're obedient children. Don't fashion your hearts towards what the world is. Chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain from them. Don't partake of them. Don't make provisions for the flesh to fulfill the desires thereof. Don't do that. We wonder why we fall into sin so easily. Because we don't flee sin. We don't treat sin as it ought to be treated. Why do we live after the world? Because we're continually wanting the world. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, that's conditional. You will not know the perfect, acceptable will of God if you're not renewing your mind in the things of Christ. If you are conforming yourself to this world, It won't surprise me if you just don't get it. Because sin affects us. Every single one of us. Not a one of us here this morning is immune to that. We can all catch the cold of sin. We can all catch the flu of sin. None of us are immune. There's no shots against it. Because it's in us. And the world is out there. Let me give a warning, and I'll close with this. And I don't mean this warning in a mean way. I mean it in such the way that it's given in Scripture. What happens if we turn back? Here's what happens. For after that, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse than them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. It would have been better you never have known it. You'd still go to hell. But the degree of that punishment is going to be far greater for you if you turn back. 
So that's me. No, that's Bible. That's Scripture. And we better listen so that we will not be like the proverb, the the dog is turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that washed to her wallowing in the mire.